in these verses, beginning in verse 28, what God says and what Moses says. It's all about what God says. Look at verse 28. Now, it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? This is all about what God says and whether or not Moses believes God will be faithful to what he says. That's what this chapter is about. So this chapter is a demonstration that God is faithful to his word. Now, how does God show us his faithfulness to keep his word? How does he demonstrate it? Well, let's consider some ways this morning that God demonstrates his faithfulness to keep his word. Just walk through, again, as we do every week, we just look at the the movements of the chapter and they show us and they unveil to us different ways that God shows that he is faithful to do what he says. He'll keep his word. How does he do it? In verses 1 through 5, we see the first way. He remembers his promise. He he remembers his promise. Like a couple on their wedding day making vows. Every now and then in marriage, you have to go back and you have to remember what did we promise? How do we live with each other according to what we said we would do? This is what God does. He remembers what he promises. It's in the first five verses. You remember what Moses accused God of in chapter 5, verse 23. You've not delivered your people. You haven't been faithful. So God says in verse 1, now you will see. You'll see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh under compulsion. He will let them go and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. This is really powerful. This is God telling Moses, I will move on Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will make a decision that is completely different than everything that you've just seen from him. And in so doing, I'm going to show you how faithful I am to my word. This is really essential, isn't it? And how powerful is this? I know what Pharaoh just said to you. I know what Pharaoh just did to you and to Israel. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it so painful for him. He will, of his own will, will drive Israel out of the land. He'll do exactly opposite of what he just said he would do. Under compulsion, he will let them go with a strong hand. That's the word compulsion. In Hebrew, it's literally the phrase with a strong hand. The phrase means that God's strong hand will drive Pharaoh to let the people go. And most oftentimes, the word strong hand is accompanied by some miraculous powers. And that's what we're going to see in the plagues, aren't we? We're going to see the strong hand of God. Under compulsion, he will let them go. Under compulsion, with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Because of God's strong hand, Pharaoh will force Israel to go. He will not even want them there anymore. He will be happy to see his 
labor force leave the land. That's how strong the hand of God will be. What is interesting also about this phrase, the strong hand or compulsion, is that this is the same term that will be used to describe God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He will harden it. He will make his heart strong. It'll it'll be as if his heart is unmovable. It's so strong it can't be moved. I want us to see what it is that causes God and even motivates God to do this powerful work in Pharaoh. What is it? What motivates God to do this work? Verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And you know that when you see in your Bibles the all capital letters, Lord, that is simply the the English expression of the Hebrew of the divine and personal name of God, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, or I appeared to them as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. God takes Moses back to the pivot point promise that he had made, the promise to Abraham that was passed down to Isaac and Jacob which each of them had to go through some significant steps to actually believe this promise. You remember the promise was made beginning in Genesis chapter 12. It was reiterated to Moses in chapter 15 and chapter 17 of the book of of Genesis. And then it was reiterated again to Isaac and then to Jacob. And God constantly brought the same promise up to them over and over again. But notice here in verse 3, what God says to Moses about how he appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I appeared to them as God Almighty, or that's the term in Hebrew, El Shaddai. El is the word for God. Shaddai is a Hebrew term for being almighty or authoritative. He appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17.1. When Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. He also appeared before Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 when he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And he said in Genesis 35, 11, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. In Genesis 28.3, Isaac refers to God as El Shaddai when he blessed Jacob and sent him away to Laban to find a wife. Jacob refers to God as El Shaddai in Genesis chapter 43, verse 14, when he sends his son back to Egypt. And in chapter 48, verse 3, Jacob refers to God again as El Shaddai when he blesses his son Joseph. What's the significance behind the name El Shaddai. Typically, it's translated as God Almighty. It's the God who has the ability, the strength, and the power to accomplish everything that he desires to do. Essentially, this is the God who makes a promise. 
God Almighty makes a promise. He establishes a covenant. He established a covenant under his name El Shaddai in Genesis 17. But then in, back in Exodus 6.3, God makes this interesting statement, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. What does that mean? So God made himself known as the almighty God who establishes a covenant. He has the power to do and to govern everything according to that covenant, but he never revealed himself as Yahweh. Does this mean that the patriarchs had never heard the name Yahweh and that it was only revealed to Moses during the Exodus and this was the first time they've ever heard this name? It, it kind of sounds that way and some liberal theologians, they say, well, this is kind of how the Pentateuch was put together. There was a guy who wrote it years later and he used the word Yahweh to add stuff to the Pentateuch and an older author used the word El or Elohim and he wrote it and so this is just a compilation of different authors over time and this verse proves that. The patriarchs never knew God is Yahweh but I don't think that's likely. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 26 Moses says in that text very early on in human history men at that time began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Not El Shaddai, but well before Abraham, men were calling upon the name of Yahweh. That means they were worshiping him as Yahweh. In other places in Genesis, there's direct speech where people are referring to God as Yahweh, using his divine name. Eve does it in Genesis 4.1. Lamech in chapter 5, verse 29 of Genesis. Noah in 9.26 of Genesis. Abraham refers to God as Yahweh directly in chapter 14, verse 22. Sarah does it in chapter 16. Even the Lord himself refers to himself as Yahweh in Genesis 18. So it's not as if the patriarchs had never heard this name Yahweh before. So then what is he saying here? I've never revealed myself to the patriarchs, to the men of old as Yahweh, only as El Shaddai. It's essentially this. The name El Shaddai says I make the covenant, I have the ability to keep the covenant, and Yahweh says I will keep the covenant. I finish the covenant. I complete the covenant. Yahweh is God's name that says, I am faithful to my word. Now think about that. Did Abraham ever see the land become the nation of Israel? No. He died and the promise had not been fulfilled. God was still El Shaddai, the God who makes the covenant and governs everything so that it will one day be fulfilled, but he died and it had not been fulfilled. And you can go all the way down to Joseph, whose bones will eventually be taken back to that land when Israel leaves Egypt and they go back to the land. So God says here, the patriarchs only knew me as the one who makes the covenant. You're about to know me as the one who keeps the covenant. That's his name. Every time you hear his name, you should hear the word faithful. That's essentially what's at play behind the name of Yahweh. He is the God who always is, meaning he is always faithful. He will keep his word. He will do what he promises to do. And from this time forward, certainly God is not going to cease to be the almighty. He is the book of Revelation even uses this term. 
But God is going to show himself over and over and over to be the God who keeps the covenant. He even alludes to that in verse 5. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I've remembered, I have remembered my covenant. I'm about to keep my word. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to bring you back to the land. It's not just going to be a nice three-day weekend out in the wilderness. No, I'm going to actually bring you back and I'm going to fulfill what I said. Why? Because I've remembered my covenant. I remembered my word. And so now I'm going to show you I'm faithful to my word. Every time you see that phrase that God remembers, you should underline that, maybe circle it. Yep, I know those of you who don't like to write in your Bibles, this is when you write in it. Take a highlighter and just highlight when God remembers because that's when God is about to show himself faithful. Like Noah in the ark after days and days and days of rain. It seems like it wouldn't stop. Chapter 8 of Genesis verse 1 says, but God remembered Noah. He'd already made a promise to Noah. He remembered him and he's about to fulfill his promise. In Genesis 19.29, it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley. You remember when he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The next statement says, God remembered Abraham. In Exodus 2 verse 24, at the beginning of this book we're studying, God heard the groaning of the Israelites and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Do you remember Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel? In 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 19, she, she was barren and she would plead with God every year when she would go to the temple to please grant me a son. And she even devoted that son, if the Lord would grant it, would devote that son to the Lord's service. It says in 1 Samuel 1 19, they arose early in the morning and worshipped before Yahweh and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife. And the next phrase is all-powerful, isn't it? And the Lord remembered her. What does that mean? He did what he said he would do. Yahweh remembered. Psalm 105 verse 42 says, God remembered his holy word With Abraham, his servant, he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations, and they might take possession of the fruit of the peoples. He remembered his word, so he fulfilled his promise to bring them into the land. When God is faithful, you know why he's faithful? He keeps bringing his own promise back up to his mind. This is what I said. So this is what I'm going to do. He remembers it. He brings it up to him, his own self. I'm going to remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God demonstrates his faithfulness to keep his word because he does everything that he does while keeping in mind everything that he has promised. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 will remind us, every promise that God has made is Yes, and amen in Christ. Christ is the ultimate pinnacle point that says that God will do exactly what he says he will do. 
every action, every delay that you think is a delay, every hardship that he allows, every disaster that God ordains is under his authority, but it's also under his promise. This is what keeps us hopeful. It's not just that God is all powerful to guide and direct everything that happens in the universe. It is that he's powerful and he's faithful. He's faithful to do what he says he's going to do. What Genesis promises in eternal salvation from sin. You turn to the book of Revelation and it shows God fulfilling in eternal life and freedom from sin, don't you? He's faithful. He shows us so many instances where he keeps his promise in mind when he comes to our aid, when he meets our needs. When you look back and you say, I've prayed for this and God said no and it discouraged you and later on when he does provide what he provides, you look back and says, God, that was better. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful. He constantly remembers his own promise. God's faithful. There's a second way God demonstrates his faithfulness to keep his word in verses six through eight. He accomplishes our salvation. He accomplishes our salvation. These verses are a call for Moses to go back to the dejected and angry Israelites who are under life-threatening circumstances. Look at verse six. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. Why? I am Yahweh. Did you note all of the I wills of God? Did they not ring in your ears over and over and over? I will bring you out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. I'll alleviate all of your suffering. I will deliver deliver you from their bondage. I'll free you from the enslavement. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will provide justice for you. I will take you for my people. I will actually give you my identity. I will bring you to the land. I will fulfill my promise. All of those phrases, list them out, study them, look at them. These are the phrases of salvation itself, are they not? And notice how this promise of salvation begins in verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. What do you hear when you hear Yahweh? Faithful. Look at the end of it in verse 8. When I will give you that land for a possession, why does he do it? Because I am Yahweh. At the beginning and at the end, I am the faithful covenant-keeping God. My covenant-keeping name, my personal reputation, everything that I said is on the line. I will do what I have promised to do because of who I am. And if it doesn't happen, 
God is then not faithful. If God doesn't do exactly what he said he would do, exactly the way he said he would do it, to the very detail, God is not faithful. Don't try to change his promises. Don't don't try to make them say something else. Don't try to force them in to make it fit your understanding. You say, well, I haven't seen it come about yet. No, whatever God says, it happens exactly the way he says it will happen or he's not faithful. If he made a promise to his people, he will fulfill it precisely the way he said it. I mean, look at all of the prophecies regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ down to the very place where he would be born. He didn't spiritualize those prophecies. He didn't spiritualize those into something other than what he said. Why did he do it that way? So that you could see God is faithful to do what he said to bring about your salvation. He promised. What God has done to accomplish our eternal salvation is astounding. And what has he done so far? I mean, think about what God has done already to secure you as his own people. God taking on human nature, that in and of itself should astound you. (laughs) He took on human nature and he lived perfectly according to the standard of God with no sin whatsoever. Why? To make himself faithful, exactly what needed to happen. He willingly gave himself up to be the only possible acceptable sacrifice as a substitute for us so that we would have salvation. Why? So God would be faithful to his promise to save a people for himself. He's overcome our own enslavement to our sin. That in and of itself is astounding as well. You couldn't get out of your own sin. You were enslaved to it and he breaks the power of that so you can now live for the glory of God. How many many demonstrations of his faithfulness within your salvation has he made to you already? So that you'll trust him. So that when he says, I will come back and every promise that I have made, I will complete exactly as I, he's got a track record, doesn't he? You don't have to wonder, is God going to be faithful to these promises? Oh, we don't have to wonder at all. Not at all. Sometimes it would be good for you to think back. Maybe take a Sunday afternoon and think back on where you were and how God brought you to himself and what has he done in your life? What has he done? to show you his salvation. Sometimes we take it for granted, don't we? we? We get so accustomed to how things are going and we forget how astounding the fact that we believe really is. You know, if, if you would take that time and you would dwell on it again, you would remind yourself, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything that really should concern me about the future. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't know what's around the corner, but I look at my life up to this point, and the older you get, the more you see it, don't you? You see 
how unfaithful you've been and how persistent God has been in his faithfulness. He is Yahweh. That's what he's been showing Israel. This is what I will do. I will save you because I am Yahweh. Let's look at a third way God demonstrates his faithfulness to keep his word. He defies our doubts. He defies our doubts. Look at verse 9. So, Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. What did Moses speak? Everything God just said. Everything God just said about his salvation, everything God just said about how he's going to keep his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and he's going to do it with them. How he just said to them, I'm not going to show you myself as El Shaddai who makes the covenant. I'm going to show you myself as Yahweh who keeps the covenant. Your generation is going to see it now. So Moses went and he told them all of that. But they did not listen to Moses. They didn't listen. What does that mean? Well, they heard him. But they didn't believe him, right? Why? Well, the text tells you why. On account of their despondency. What is that? Literally, the word means shortness of breath. It's as if there was no more life in them. The situation was so hard, seemingly so impossible to get out of, There didn't seem to be any way that this was going to change. And all the people involved were just rock hard. They're not budging. There's no softness of heart in anyone. And they're just lifeless. It's like they have no more breath in them. That's despondency, isn't it? No energy. And because of their cruel enslavement, Actually, this word cruel bondage is a repetition of the same term. Again, it intensifies. It's the repetition of the word bondage or enslavement. It's a bondaged bondage. Just to say this is the worst kind of enslavement. In other words, the preacher went back and he looked at the people who were so weighted down under everything that they were going through and he preached the word of God to them again and they had itching ears to hear something else didn't they not this just like Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 1 realize this in the last days difficult times will come you do know we're living in last days Those days have been the last days since the Lord Jesus. Difficult times will come. In fact, if we're still living in the the last days, you would expect that the difficult times will grow more difficult. So what should should Timothy do? What did Paul tell him to do in chapter 4? Well, therefore, since they're going to get worse, I solemnly charge you to preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? Be ready to preach God's word no matter if the people are ready to hear it or if they're at a season where they don't want to hear it, you still preach the word. 
And you preach it in such a way that you reprove, you rebuke, you exhort, and you do it with great patience and instruction because the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. We're not going to want to hear anything more about the Bible. Just tell me good things about myself. I just want to hear something that will lift me up. I'm tired of the language of the scripture. Can you imagine living in a day like that? The word is true. Salvation is sure. God is faithful even when everything around you suggests it is not. You're not the first and you're not the last to see the salvation of God come at a time when you most doubt it. And I want you to notice how undeterred God is in verse 6. So they won't listen to Moses, but look at God in verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And look at verse 9. Moses spoke and they didn't listen And verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Well, why would he do that? They didn't listen. Go say it again. Say it over and over again. Go tell Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's not going to believe me. Pharaoh just threw God's words in Moses' face. Turn the entire congregation against Moses. And what's God's statement? Go do it again. Go do it again. And what's interesting, verse 11, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the sons of Israel go out of his land. There's no, again, there's no three day in the wilderness, is there? Why don't you go back and Let's not talk about three days in the wilderness. Let them go permanently. Completely. And then Moses breaks, doesn't he? Verse 12. But Moses spoke before Yahweh saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? If the slaves won't listen to me, do you think the master will listen to me? Who's he saying that to? Yahweh. Faithful. They're not listening, Lord. Go back and tell them again. But they're not listening. Did you hear what I just said, God? They're not listening. And then he adds this, I'm unskilled in speech. Unskilled is the same word for circumcision. I'm uncircumcised in speech. I don't have speech that is well prepared to do this. I'm incapable. I don't have holy speech. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the spirit. I don't have the gift, evidently, God, because they're not listening. If, 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 they, if this was the right thing to do, they would all listen and they would all obey and this would all be easy. How many times have you said that? If I really was in the will of God, then this should just work like clockwork. This should just happen the way it's supposed to happen. But evidently, I'm incapable. 
This is another charge against God, isn't it? He's telling Moses again and again and again, you go and speak, you go and speak. We've already dealt with this issue about your uncircumcised lips. We've already had this conversation. And Moses brings it up again. I can't do this. Do you not see it? But I'm faithful. We give up so easy, don't we? We give up so easy. This is the line of unfaithful thinking and reasoning that flows too often from our lips when obeying God is just not immediately fruitful and it's not personally fulfilling. God, I can't do this. And again, look at verse 13. God is undeterred by all of this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge gave them a charge it's one word in Hebrew it just means he gave it to them he let them have it it's kind of what it reads this he just let them have it the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt just do it that's just like God Every excuse, every doubt, every incapability you bring up, everything you can't do, everything that's not working, he keeps saying, nope, go back again, obey, do what I've said, read the word again, trust the word. I know you don't see it coming out just exactly like you think it should, but I'm going to show you I'm faithful. And have you ever noticed it's as if he's squeezing all of the self-reliance out of us so that we get to this point where we see, no, it really is you that's faithful. Because I don't have anything in me. So it must be you. It's what he's doing with Moses. It's what he's doing with Israel. They're at a point where I don't see anything in me that can make this happen. Good. That's when God shows his faithfulness most clearly and most astounding. We don't give way in what we believe about God's word just because the culture stands against it and they won't budge. I've never seen such displays of affection for homosexuality like we're seeing today. Pride month. We don't give way in how we define gender, marriage, sexuality, church order, we don't, we don't give way on how we talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. We, we don't give way on how the gospel is defined or the implications of the gospel, how the church is to function, what constitutes true worship and genuine obedience to the word. We don't, we don't give way on all that even though the culture won't budge and they seem to keep encroaching in on us. And we might not be the most publicly effective spokespersons We may not understand everything there is to understand and and our wisdom seems so short. We may doubt our own capabilities because we're so mindful of our own sin. But don't doubt God. Don't doubt God and don't doubt his word. He's always been faithful. You're not the first Christians in church history, are you? No, there's generations of generations. You've got a whole book, the Bible, that shows you how faithful God has been to his people. Don't doubt God. Let's look at a fourth way that God demonstrates his faithfulness to keep his word. 
from verse 14 to the end, he preserves his people. He preserves his people. By the end of verse 13, you're starting to think, well, maybe Moses isn't the right guy. I mean, he's bringing up old arguments that God has already done away with. And, and he's gone and, and he's, he, he's got his head handed to him a couple of times now. And, and he's just defeated. Israel is actually lifeless. So maybe Moses is just not the right guy. And what has Aaron done through all of this? Nothing. What have you seen Aaron do through all of this account? Nothing. Moses, he, he has a problem with speech. He's not skilled. He's not trained. Aaron was supposed to be the spokesman. He's done nothing. So maybe these two guys are illegitimate. Maybe these two guys don't belong here. Maybe these are not the guys that need to be the spokesman for God. They're not the ones who need to represent God to the people and the people before the Lord. Oh, no, they are. Despite their inabilities, they are. How do you know that? Because of a genealogy. A genealogy. You just like, oh, now we're lifeless. <laughs> we got to go through a genealogy. Some of you are with me through Genesis and you're like, oh, Brett geeks out on these genealogies. Yes, I do. <laughs> and this is a wonderful one. Especially right here. I mean, you, you almost feel like, shouldn't we get to the plagues now? Why all this delay? Launch the plagues. No genealogies necessary. That was Genesis. Let's get to something really interesting now. Well, this is not merely a genealogy. It's like all of the other biblical genealogies. It's very purposeful. It's very intentional. And not every name that could be named is named. It's selective. That's not to say it's inaccurate. Oh, it's very accurate, but there's a point to it. And, and what is the point to the genealogy? Well, it starts in verse 14, and essentially it concludes... In verse 25. But notice verse 26. Here's the point of the genealogy. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. What is the point of the genealogy? It has to be these two guys. You can't doubt them. It's this Moses and this Aaron, not some other Moses and some other Aaron, these two guys. Well, what's so significant about these two guys? Well, that's what the genealogy points out. Now, there's really two intentions here in this genealogy. One is to show the legitimacy of Moses and Aaron and why it has to be these two men and the second intention is to show the astounding providential grace of God despite the sinful, willful people who seemingly could have de really derailed this genealogy. Let me show you that. I want to show you what I mean by these two items in the genealogy. I want you to know how God preserves his people. How does he do that? Well, first, he preserves legitimacy. 
That's one of the reasons for this genealogy, so that God can preserve legitimacy. So other generations would look at this and say, no, it's Moses and Aaron, they're the right guys. They're the right guys for this. Now I'm going to go through this fairly quick. I would love to just slowly walk through it, but I will spare you some of the detail. But I, I just want to quickly show you what God is doing here to show Moses and Aaron as being legitimate spokesmen for God. First, in preserving legitimacy, he makes a connection to Israel. Just note that. He makes a connection to Israel. He does that in verses 14 and 15. Look at them. These are the heads of their father's households. Whose father's households? Moses and Aaron's. And he goes all the way back to the firstborn sons of Jacob. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, these are the families of Reuben. Verse 15, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shahul, the son of the Canaanite woman, these are the families of Simeon. Why list this? Why not just start with Moses connection to Levi because that's the family from which Moses and Aaron come from why start with Reuben and why start with Simeon to connect them to Israel he's an Israelite so he begins with Israel's first three sons Reuben Simeon and then he does get to Levi in verse 16 now the reality is that the tribe of Levi is the one that Moses will say the most about in this genealogy. He will not say much about Reuben. He will not say much about Simeon, but he will launch into detail about Levi, which shows you he's the real focus. But he wants to put this in perspective. These guys are true Israelites. Doesn't mention any of the other sons of Jacob, does he? Just the first three. So this is not about all the sons, just legitimizes Moses as an Israelite. And some might question that. He was raised in Egypt for the most part. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. No, he's, he's connected. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Second, there's a connection to Levi that shows him to be legitimate, Aaron and Moses. A connection to Levi, that's verse 16. So he's not just a legitimate son, he's also a legitimate priest. That's what you learn here in verse 16. Why is he connected to Levi? These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. Here's the sons of Levi. Only his son, these sons, are mentioned here. And notice Levi's age is actually provided here. It's not, Reuben's age is not provided. Simeon's age is not provided. That means Levi is really the focus. Moses and Aaron are of the right tribe to be those who speak for God to the people and speak to God on behalf of the people as intermediaries. They can be priests because they're a part of the priestly tribe, Levi. You see that? Third, there's a connection to Kohath in verse 18. It's really fascinating. Why, why connect him to Kohath, the sons of Kohath, who was one of the sons of Levi? Well, this shows Moses to have a legitimate function, 
a legitimate function. If you notice the sons of Levi that are mentioned in verse 16, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, if you look at later revelation in the book of Numbers, especially chapter 3, verses 25 to 39, you're going to see a description of the sons of Levi and what they all did in relationship to the priesthood. Gershon and the sons of Gershon handled all of the tabernacle, the tent, all of the externals of the tabernacle. Merari, in Numbers chapter 3, verses 33 to 37, they handled the infrastructure of the tabernacle, all of the poles and the wooden posts that would hold up the tent. What did the sons of Kohath do? They were assigned responsibilities. And what was their assignment? Numbers chapter 3, verses 27 to 32 tell us they handled all of the furniture inside the sanctuary that inner part of the tabernacle. And what was that furniture? What did it consist of? The table of showbread, the candle, the seven branch candelabra, and also one of the most important pieces. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. Who handled the most precious pieces that were a part of the tabernacle? All of the pieces that only the high priest And his sons could even touch. And only the high priest could touch the Ark of the Covenant or go in and spread blood on that altar. Who who does Moses and Aaron come from? The sons of Kohath who are connected to the most precious pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. They will have the right function. You'll notice again, of the sons of Levi that are mentioned, only the son Kohath has his final age mentioned verse 18 133 years why because he's the focal point of those sons fourth there's a connection to Amran you say well what what is the point there well be mentioned in verse 20 Amran one of the sons of Kohath His age is mentioned also, so he's the focal point of these sons. It's mentioned in verse 20, 137 years. And verse 20 says, Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed. Now we'll get to that in just a moment. Hold on to that. But she bore him Aaron and Moses. So Aaron and Moses are completely tied to this person, Amram, showing that Moses has a legitimate leadership position. The leaders of Israel would come from this union between Amran and Jacobed. There's another connection. It's a connection to Eleazar. In verse 23, Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Why Eleazar? Why is he important? Well, he's mentioned again in verse 25, Aaron's son Eleazar. It's as if the genealogy forgets the other sons and just moves in on Eleazar because he's the focal point. And who was Eleazar? He was the high priest to follow Aaron. So the connection to Eleazar shows that Moses and Aaron are connected to legitimate worship. One more connection. Actually, there's two, but one I want to point out carefully here. It's a connection to Phinehas. And this is one I wish we had more time to go into. We don't, but there's a connection to Phinehas. In fact, the entire genealogy 
focuses in on this person, Phinehas. Verse 25, Aaron's son, Eleazar, marries one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas, and these are the heads of the father's household. It just ends right there on him. Why? Who is he? Well, you can go back and read Numbers 25. It's a fascinating account when there's a plague that had broke out in Israel because of their immorality, and they're bringing into their camp foreign wives. And one man takes one of those foreign wives right in front of Moses in the entire camp and brings her into his tent to commit immoral acts with her. And Phinehas says, enough. And he takes a spear inside the tent and drives it through the two of them and kills them. You remember that? And it stops the plague And if you look carefully at Numbers 25, verses 6 through 13, you're going to see that Phinehas then is not only noted for his holy zeal, but he is granted a perpetual priesthood. A priesthood that would always remind God's people of what holy zeal looks like. Moses and Aaron are connected to this Phinehas because they have a legitimate zeal for holiness. One other I want to show you. Verse 23. There's actually a connection to the tribe of Judah. In verse 23, Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of someone from the tribe of Judah, Aminadab, the sister of Nashon. What? That's right. Moses has a connection to the tribe of Judah. Aminadab and Nashon are actually both listed specifically in Matthew chapter 1 verse 4 and Luke chapter 3 verses 32 to 33 as those connected to the genealogy of Jesus. Moses has a genealogical connection to the tribe of Judah. Reuben gave up his firstborn status because he went after his father's concubine and lost it. Simeon and Levi lost their status next because of the genocide with the Shechemites. Who was next in line? Judah. Moses even has a connection to Judah. It's one of the reasons why Moses would say in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that there would one day be a prophet that would come, who would be like him, that would come and they should listen to him. And both Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts, Peter in in Acts 3 and Stephen in Acts 7 say what Moses and who Moses was referring to as that prophet was the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the one who comes from that tribe. Moses even has a messianic connection, doesn't he? How does God preserve his people? (laughs) Through every twist and turn of genealogical record so that's exactly the particular son, the particular place, the particular emphasis that needs to be had. That's how he preserves. But he also preserves his people not just by preserving legitimacy, but let let me finish with this one. He does so by overcoming sin. There's a lot of sin mentioned in this genealogy. I don't know if you saw it. 
But Moses is contrasted with Reuben in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 14, because Reuben is the one, we always remember him, he lost his firstborn status because he tried to usurp the position, take it too early of his father by, by marrying one of Jacob's concubines before Jacob had even died. He was presumptuous and he lost that status. So Moses is now contrasted with Reuben. He's contrasted also with Simeon in verse 15. Notice verse 15. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of what? A Canaanite woman. Why throw that phrase in? This is someone who brought a foreign wife into the line of Israel. Despite the fact that in Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi were responsible for genocide. They also brought in foreign wives into the line. They're out of carrying the line of covenant promise. There's also a contrast with Amran in verse 20. In verse 20, Amran married his father's sister. He married his aunt. Why is that a problem? Well, later in the law of Moses in Leviticus 18.12, it will be forbidden that you cannot marry your aunt. It's a relationship that's too close. So it's highlighted here to say, no, there's a contrast with Amran. Something else we need to point, point out here, it reads here as if Jochebed was the mother of Aaron and Moses, but that's not likely. You say, what? It says that she bore them. Well, it's not likely the case because if she was, she would have had to have been about 350 years old. You say, well, Genesis 5, that was possible. Well, did you notice the other list of ages of how long the men lasted? 130 some, 120 some. So it's not likely that Jochebed, who would have been 350 years old, was actually the mother. What is, what is the point? Moses is connected to this line, to Amran and Jochebed, who did something that was detestable, and God still kept him in the line. God did not disqualify Moses from being in the line. Why? God preserves his people despite sin. There's also a contrast to Korah, verses 21 to 24. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Well, only the sons of Korah are emphasized here. Verse 24, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph, these are the families of the Korhites. Why even go there? Why even mention them? They're not, they're not even a prominent family. Why? Because they will be a prominent family in number 16 when the sons of Korah stand up and challenge the leadership and wisdom and right of Moses and Aaron to lead Israel. You can go read number 16. Fire comes out from the Lord and destroys 250 of the sons of Korah whom they gathered together and the ground opens up and consumes them all and closes on them. There's a contrast to the sons of Korah who were illegitimate leaders making Moses a legitimate leader. There's also a contrast to Nadab and Abihu. Illegitimate worship. You see these sons who are mentioned in verse 23, she bore him Nadab and Abihu 
as well as Eleazar. Well, what's so important about El, uh, Nadab and Abihu? Leviticus 10, they offered strange fire before the Lord, illegitimate worship, and fire comes out of the tabernacle and completely consumes them. Why mention these sons? To contrast Moses and Aaron with these sons. What's he doing? How faithful is God to preserve the people that he wants to use to fulfill his promise? I mean, he's so faithful, so faithful. You remember the genealogy of Jesus? Includes sinful kings that had curses placed upon them and women who had done rebellious acts. Why? Because Jesus is a savior from sin. Why show all of this sinfulness here? Moses is the spokesperson of God who is about to bring redemption to his sinful people. And there's so much in this genealogy that says this is the right man, Moses and Aaron. This is the, these are the right leaders despite all of the sin that has gone on and God has interacted with even this genealogy to preserve his people. Yes, despite Moses and his doubts, this is the right man for the job. So we struggle to keep our word When we make a promise to God, I know that, we struggle. You understand, God never struggles to keep his word. He will work through generations of people despite sinfulness to bring everything about exactly as he desires it to be brought about. He will be faithful to his word. Everything in this chapter points to that. When Jesus says he'll save you from the consequences of your sin... God will keep his word. When he says it's worth it to stay faithful to the word despite what's going on in your life, God means that. He will preserve you. He will keep you. When he says you'll never lose the salvation that he's given you, he means that. He will keep you. doesn't matter what you see or what you think. He is faithful to his word. Let's pray together.